Welcome to Conversations with Inspirations, the Neurology Section Oral History Collection. My name is Britta Smith, historian of the Neurology Section and your host for an interview with Faye Horak, held here in San Diego and sunny California at the 2013 Combined Sections meeting. Joining me today for the interview is Linda Chiza, Assistant Clinical Professor at the Texas Women's University, Treasurer of the Neurology Section, and past chair of the Balance and Falls SIG. Welcome, Linda. Thank you very much. It's exciting to be here. Absolutely. It is my great pleasure to introduce Faye Horak, physical therapist and PhD. Dr. Horak is a professor in the departments of neurology, physiology, and biomedical engineering at Oregon Health and Sciences University. She is an expert in postural stability and the neurologic control of balance, and is known for her development of the BEST test, the Balance Evaluation Systems Test. She has authored or co-authored over 200 publications, of which her 1986 article, Central Programming of Postural Movements, with co-author Lou Nashner, was one of the most cited articles in the Journal of Neurology, excuse me, in the Journal of Neurophysiology in the 1980s. Her clinical and research areas of interest include Parkinson's disease, vestibular disorders, multiple sclerosis, gait disorders, balance and falls, and other neurological disorders. Dr. Horak has numerous awards and recognitions, including the 1989 Research Section Marion Williams Award, the 1992 Neurology Section Research Award, and the 2011 Anne Shumway Cook Translating Neural Rehabilitation Research to Practice Lectureship Award. And thank you, Dr. Horak, for taking the time out of your busy schedule and being here with us today. Thank you very much. So, I know most therapists want to know, why did you become a physical therapist? <laughs> well, I decided to become a physical therapist when I was in high school. Uh, my mother actually encouraged me by showing me a brochure. And she says, you need something challenging, Faye, and you want to help people. And to tell you the truth, in those days, I didn't think... Um, being a physician or being a PhD was even possible for a woman. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to have a, a job that I could do and uh, help people and um, also was flexible in terms of timing and child rearing. So, and I also like sciences and so this allowed me to apply my interest in science to something that would be useful in helping uh, people who have disabilities. Great. Now, you graduated from physical therapy school from the University of Wisconsin in 1973, and your clinical experience was relatively short, I believe only three years, but you also worked at three different facilities virtually at the same time. Um, did you know at that point you wanted to go into research? I knew when I was in physical therapy school that I wanted to understand better than the neurophysiology basis for what we were doing. Um, we were just getting introduced to all the neuro, neuro uh, muscular and you know, neuro control techniques from Dr. Rood and um, PNF and Bobath and I was so interested in those I couldn't stop reading about them and I wanted to understand why. I kept on asking why. Um, well why should we, why does it work that way? And so I knew in physical therapy school that I would go on somehow and um, so I, I did work with patients with neurological disorders in my first jobs. Mm -hmm. But you know, at that time, it was really hard to get a job in physical therapy. It's, um, 
because they're um, uh, it was a different different time, <laughs> and um, so I ha held two part-time jobs: one one in uh, with children, um, and one with um, elderly people in a nursing home. So I would go from the morning to the afternoon doing that, and then I worked in a rehabilitation center. But I took night school immediately after I started my physical therapy to get my prerequisites for going on either to medical school or to get a PhD. So I started taking, you know, statistics and more math and things like that. Well, but first you uh, got your master's degree from the University of Minnesota in 1977. At that time, was that a prerequisite to... It was even these, these uh, math and statistics courses were, and I even had to take physical chemistry. Um, they were prerequisite for getting into the physiology program. In fact, um, it was a pretty big leap for my advisor in physiology, who uh, all the professors there were engineers and, and neurophysiologists. They never took somebody what they called allied health into their PhD program. So I had to show them that I could do the work, and by doing the, the courses at night, I think that, that helped. Hold on, the other thing that helped, though, you know, is um, Dr. Peg Coley was a director of the physical therapy program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Mm -hmm. And she made sure that her students, you know, she was grandmothered in um, from the, um, the war. And um, she made sure, though, her students were not technicians, but got all the pre-med classes. So we took the hardest physics, the hardest biology, you know, the hardest physiology classes. And it was because of her and because of that that I had those challenging classes. I didn't have any trouble when I went to neurophysiology and got a master's. So who would you say were your most influencing mentors when you were in, phys in the physical therapy program? So that's interesting. Um, I, I remember um, wondering whether I should go and get a PhD when I was, you know, getting my physical therapy bachelor's degree. And so I visited a student who was doing that, a physical therapist who was getting a neurophysiology degree. Um, and that was uh, Dr. Suzanne Campbell. And she said, yes, you should get a PhD, but don't do it in neuroanatomy. <laughs> <laughs> So she she was very encouraging. I just met her, you know, for several hours a couple of times, and that really helped. And then Dr. Joan Werner was one of my instructors and really tried to help us understand the neuroscience underlying what we did. And so that was very influential to me as well. So And everybody there was very encouraging of my uh, idea to try to understand physical therapy better by going on in neurophysiology. But you did your Ph.D. work at the University of Washington and uh, received your degree in 1982. Mm -hmm. uh, why did you choose the University of Washington? Well, um, I was in Minnesota because that's where my husband was working, and so that's where the, or I went to neurophysiology. And although it was a very good program, I, um, the people that were studying there were focusing on single receptors. I studied muscle spindles in cats. And I really wanted to translate whatever I was learning in physiology to something practical in neurorehabilitation. And it's a lot harder to do that, just like it is with neuroanatomy, to directly apply it to improving rehabilitation. So I looked for a program where I could work with awake-behaving animals, and I was hoping to work with human subjects. In fact, I went to the University of Washington with the understanding that I would do my PhD with people as my subjects. But after I did my first paper in my first year, 
on people with stroke, looking at anticipatory postural adjustments with arm raising. My committee said, you're in a neurophysiology program and you can't get a degree working with only humans. You're going to have to choose an animal to do your research with. So the monkeys. So I worked, yeah, <laughs> instead of working with cats, I decided to work with monkeys because at least they were awake and they were behaving, they were doing something. And I could look then at um, anticipatory postural adjustments in monkeys <laughs> while they were voluntarily making arm movements. So you, in, your, in your dissertation, I know that it was uh, related to monkeys making arm movements, but were you actually analyzing their postural responses? I was. I, um, that's where I learned how to use EMG with monkeys. I put electrodes on the muscles of the monkeys, mm -hmm. and I had to actually implant them under their skin. Otherwise, they would take them off, of course. You know? And um, they were um, trained to make reaching movement, and I could record which muscles were active in the trunk and the arms and the legs when, when they were pushing off buttons. And then um, what was also good is I could look in, in the brain and I could record from neurons there to see uh, how in the basal ganglia was active during these anticipatory postural adjustments. So I got pretty excited about neurophysiology to, to listen how the brain is controlling movement was, was uh, very, uh, very much fun, you know. Were other people looking at anticipatory postural responses at that time? Um, not, not really. There was a Russian paper in 1967 in humans that really um, inspired us to begin to look at that. But um, we, we had one of the first um, systematic studies in human subjects by recording muscles all through the body to see which ones would be active first when you made a, made a rapid arm raise. Um, and then nobody was doing that with animals at all. And we asked whether the basal ganglia was special and especially activated for anticipatory postural adjustment or was it also useful for the whole, all the arm movements. And we found it wasn't special that the basal ganglia participated in distal as well as more proximal or postural muscles. So it was pretty new. Yeah. So looking at postural control mechanisms, what was it that drove you to look along that research pathway? Hmm. I guess that's my other inspiration was Dr. Marjorie Anderson, who is my advisor at the University of Washington. Um, she had a joint appointment in physical therapy or physical medicine and uh, physiology. And um, she was really interested in posture and the role the basal ganglia might have in posture. And so I began to um, think about posture and balance and how important it was for, for physical therapy, and it seemed like the, the perfect match. And then I realized that most neurophysiology was based on voluntary arm movements. Almost all the animal studies was done with voluntary movements, and there was very, very little on understanding how we can balance, how we can stand. There was a little bit on, on, on locomotion in cats, but there was really nothing about uh, standing and balancing. And so it seemed like a wide open area. Yeah. Were any of your early findings, did, did they uh, create into question any of the things you learned about in PT school? Did it kind of make you think, wow, this is not congruent with what I, uh, with what I had learned? Well, the biggest surprise was when I was working in my master's uh, thesis because I had planned on going to University of Minnesota to write a thesis based on the scientific literature of what is the neurophysiologic basis 
for our, our neuro treatment approaches. And I went through every approach that I learned, you have PNF and Bobath and, and uh, all the rude techniques and things like that. And I found I couldn't write a paper on the neurophysiological basis for these things because they weren't founded first on first principles on, on animal research in the lab. They were more started with humans. And then they, people would go back and infer what they might be doing. So my, that's when my advisor told me, well, if the literature's not out there, you're gonna have to create the literature and do it. So I, I, it's not like um, uh, I, I found that something was different. I mean, I just found like there wasn't the strong research basis for what physical therapists were doing with their patients. So that, that needed to be done by physical therapists. All right, let's take a break for just a second. Hey, Laura. Oh, so <laughs> That's okay. I didn't even think I'd, I didn't even think you were coming up because I thought you were in meetings the rest of the day. I was. I'm sorry. I didn't interrupt. Okay. I okay. didn't you guys were going to be in here. Today. Well, we got kicked out of where we were. So. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. All right. We'll edit this out, of course. But yes. Uh, I so I'll. <laughs> can I really? Can you I want just, a second? Yes. Just, <laughs> okay. I only came up here to switch bags. All right. We're going to pause for so a second. Sorry. No, we're not. We're just going to let it run and we'll cut it out. <laughs> I've got unlimited memory time. So, all right, I feel like I've been hogging the question. No, so you're are, fine. You, are we jump? All right. <laughs> so we're jumping in. All right. So um, uh, that's interesting because I would have thought that uh, what you've learned about posture may have uh, really changed your thoughts about some of the uh, well, that's true. Bath or things like that's that. That's true. I mean, that's I mean, true. There, when I learned... Um, when I first learned about what balance was about, mm -hmm. I was taught that it was a series of reflexes, you know, like uh, writing reflexes and equilibrium reflexes that were mostly vestibularly mediated. And so when I started my work with humans in, in a human balance disorders lab and try, try to understand that, um, that's when I found that wasn't true at all. It was mostly somatosensory was the more important sense. And they weren't reflexes at all, but they could be learned. And they were complex skills. So they weren't something you were born with, it's something you had to learn. So, but I think it really supported the spirit of the neurodevelopmental approach um, more than what was given as the physiological basis at the time. But the physiological basis for it has changed over time. Not what therapists do so much, but why they do it. I think now there's a stronger, uh, stronger scientific basis for it. Thanks to you. <laughs> Thanks to you. <laughs> well, um, one of your collaborations with Thank with you guys. Sorry. No problem. We'll wait till the door closes and then we'll we'll give the next question. One of your collaborations was with Lou Nashner, who most of us think of as uh, developing um, the Equitest. Um, how did you guys meet, and how did your research together begin? Well, when I was a graduate student working with monkeys at the University of Washington, um, Anne Chamoy Cook and I became friends uh, because we took a class together there. She was in another department in um, special education. And so we decided, we heard about this. Uh, my phone. I'm so sorry. Okay. 
Isn't that your phone? Right there? No, it's no. mine. Oh, okay. I better shut it off, though. And actually, I was just thinking that, too. I'm really sorry. Okay. All right, we can splice this together. No big deal. Okay, so you uh, took a class with Ann Shumway Cook. Right. And so Ann and I decided to go visit Lou Nashner and talk to him about neurocontrol balance. And that's when, in that meeting, driving from Seattle to Portland, Oregon, we decided, uh, and talking to Lou, that we got, both of us got really excited about his work and how it could apply to rehabilitation. He was an engineer from MIT who developed a way of, of looking at how humans use sensory information for balance control as part of his thesis. And Ann said, wow, we should have to use this with patients with problems, not just with healthy people. So Ann, right then and there, decided to quit her PhD program, go work with Lou. <laughs> she got the first physical therapy uh, foundation award to work with Lou Nashner. She just stopped her PhD to do that project. I finished my PhD with monkeys. And after I graduated, I decided to do a postdoc with him. So I wrote a postdoctoral grant at NIH. And that's when I decided to work with him. And the first thing we worked on is what kind of postural strategies do healthy people use when uh, they're perturbed, you know? So when you give them a push, um, how, do they, how do they coordinate their balance? And that's when we uh, characterize the ankle and hip strategies for posture control. And that's the paper, my very first paper as a postdoc that became one of the most read papers in neurophysiology. That was great. <laughs> Even I've read that. <laughs> in um, 1980s, you started doing a lot of work in, in research with vestibular patients. Uh, what was the thing that excited you about that patient population? Well, when I was working with Lou, um, I never had seen a person with a vestibular problem before. And uh, even though I was working as a physical therapist for several years before I went back to school, and, and but he had recruited an MD to our institution, Dr. Owen Black, who was an otolaryngologist. And I was the person running the platform in Lou's laboratory. Lou was always traveling, so I was the one kind of doing the experiments. And Dr. Black would bring in different vestibular patients. And what I noticed is that every patient he brought in was different. There's like no two were exactly alike. And they were having a lot of problems with their balance. So um, I decided I better think about them as a physical therapist would think about them. And I started to bring them, um, when we brought them in the lab to do a study with them, I decided to start evaluating their balance control clinically. And I thought it was very, very interesting and fascinating because they weren't weak. They had good sensation in their limbs and muscles. And yet you could put them in certain contexts that would make them fall, even though in many other contexts they were completely normal. Like they had normal balance responses. Their latencies to how fast they responded to a push were normal. And yet they were still falling if you had them close their eyes on an unstable surface or something. And, and also there's many different kinds of vestibular problems. So that's when I decided I wrote a, actually a, a mentored research award um, to work with Dr. Black to learn otolaryngology, to learn vestibular pathology and, and the clinical aspects of vestibular problems. So it was a grant that's normally at NIH was meant for MDs to learn how to do science. I convinced them I was a scientist and needed to learn otolaryngology. I was a physical, you know, and, and in physical therapy. So that was a pretty fun time because 
I was able to ask questions. To me, it was like the link was close now between what we were learning about vestibular patients and how they control balance and what you could do about it as a physical therapist. Is that when you developed your interest in falls too? Well, it was more about, at that time, it was about vestibular rehabilitation. That I was convinced while we were learning that you could challenge them, first evaluate them systematically to separate them into groups, different kinds. Like some of them are very visually dependent and some are not. Some of them only fell when they closed their eyes on an unstable surface. And then developing treatment that was specific for those problems. So that's when we developed one of the first vestibular rehabilitation programs, primarily were based on the balance problems they had. And just starting to get in and thinking about dizziness and how they used vision and, and things like that. So, and those patients don't fall that much, but they are pretty miserable <laughs> because they're so disoriented. And um, we found, well, another nice thing of working with vestibular patients we found is, unlike some complex neurological patients, that very few treatments, like twice a week for four to six weeks, and you could see dramatic improvements in their balance. So it was really yes. a fun time to find a patient group that actually physical therapists were not seeing much of at the time, mm -hmm. and yet we could make such a big impact with. It was during that time in your research work, though, that you were doing a lot of collaboration with, with otolaryngologists um, in order to develop the vestibular rehab track that we now have. Is that correct? That's right. I couldn't have done it without um, learning in the otolaryngology department about the pathology of vestibular problems and their natural course and what the surgeries were available at the time and you know how you diagnose and I was always surprised at how difficult it was even for otolaryngologists who specialize vestibular problems to tell me what kind of vestibular problem the patient had usually they would say well we're not sure some kind of distorted vestibular function and and that really left it to the physical therapist to do their evaluation to try to understand you know what kind of a balance and and visual processing problem that that person had. It sounds like their profession impacted your research or science. How about your research in science? How did that impact their practice? Well, that's, that's really interesting. Um, they began to look below the ears. <laughs> Older laryngologists up to that time really concentrated on the vestibular reflex because that was... Um, one thing that they could measure and look at. And they really, they knew the patients were having complaints of balance problems, but they didn't know what balance was or what to do about it. And they never thought about how somatosensory information was important for balance. They really was thinking vestibular, vestibular, and eyes, right? So I think not only me, but everybody in physical therapy who started seeing these patients um, helped them realize how the... Um, importance of balance control in these patients and, and also about how they could compensate even if they had a vestibular problem. So um, I think we had a huge impact on, um, on otolaryngology and neurootology. Um, yeah, I've, I've been asked to give talks at otolaryngology conferences in Japan, for instance, because they want to know more about balance problems in, in their patients and what to do about them. And um, also they, they realized that, that the current otolaryngologists, neurotologists found that the, the, how they could treat patients with surgery or medication was inadequate. It wasn't meeting all their needs. 
and that exercise, uh, especially specific types of exercise for vestibular problems, so, um, is now the third leg on the stool in neurotology. You know, so they really, m most of them are really convinced that it's critical that these patients get moving again with the help of a therapist. So were otolaryngologists then giving the patients VOR exercises, or really no. did that come from the therapy end? Um, at the same time, I was working with Lou Nashner and, Do and Dr. Black mm -hmm. on trying to understand the balance problems of vestibular patients. Um, Dr. John Epley in Portland, um, a private practice otolaryngologist, was developing the Epley maneuver for um, benign paroxysmal positional nystagmus where people get dizzy when they put their heads back. Um, laying, laying back, and um, so we um, and others worked with him on incorporating that into the vestibular rehabilitation program. So, um, but up to, at that time when we first started, there there was no uh, repositioning maneuver. <laughs> I mean, it was very uh, experimental. There was one physical therapist um, in France that came over to show us how he did the hall pike procedure to help patients with these problems, but it really wasn't in the United States yet at that, at that time. So it was nice to add a component for um, physical therapy in terms of habituation and positioning of the head that focused on the vertical problems so that you, you didn't have to work only on balance but you could also work on the vestibular uh, vertical problems and then, um, and then of course adding the, the visual stabilization problems. So that was added at that time too? Yeah, that, I think Susan Herdman had a big impact on that, um, really helping us see how um, adding gaze stabilization exercises to the balance and the vertigo exercises could be helpful. Mm -hmm. So in 1999, you sat on a scientific advisory committee for NASA that was on neurovestibular research for astronauts. Do you recall that? Mm -hmm. uh, it was really fun. That committee, what did you all do? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we had astronauts at the table, and we had scientists that um, focused on different aspects of sensory motor control that might affect an astronaut in outer space. And we surmised and predicted what it might be like if it took three months to get to Mars, stay on Mars for three months, and take three months to get back. So you have, uh, on Mars, you have one-third the gravity as you have on Earth, and then you have no gravity as you're traveling there. And we thought about studies and that needed to be done in order to get to that point. So what kinds of exercises should astronauts do on the space shuttle? Or, um, you know, how would you try to prevent some of the deconditioning or the, the over-visual dependence that they have? And um, we learned some really interesting things about astronauts. Like, uh, the more often they go up, the quicker they adapt. And it didn't matter how old they were. Um, and, um, Plasticity that, again. And, how, <laughs> and how bad their balance was when they came back to Earth. And the longer they stayed away from gravity, the worse their balance was for weeks afterwards. And so we would, um, uh, with Dr. Black was very involved in that whole space agency research. And so we would be testing astronauts too. And, and it was a really, um, fun, fun time. But mostly I think that the, the job there was try to figure out what would be the most productive experiments, not only do in space, but before people started going to space so that they could best adapt to these unusual environments. So what was the outcome of that work? 
what was identified that was key that assisted in preparing the astronauts for the future or even dealing with individuals, for instance, who stayed in bed for a month because they had a stroke and that's what we did a long time ago. We kept them in bed. Mm -hmm. How did that information mm -hmm. translate to perhaps what we might do today in some circumstances? Mm -hmm. I think it is very similar of being totally immobile in a lot of ways. Um, but they realize now because of those recommendations and studies that occurred after that, that astronauts have to do weight-bearing exercises even though there's no load, they, they add loads to them by running on a treadmill in space with rubber bands hooking you to the ground to pull you down to the ground. Um, and also had them train before they go in up and to pre-adapt so that they learn how to use vision and ignore abnormal vestibular information, try to orient their body to their workplace. And then when they got back, how to um, stay stay active and not just hope it just goes away, but to actually use gaze stabilization exercises on Earth and to concentrate on somatosensory information when they're back with gravity. And I think the biggest thing they were afraid of is that they would have trouble getting out of a capsule quickly when they got back to Earth. And so that changed the strategy so that they would be more prepared for, for, for that by, by pre-adapting. Pre yeah. Many clinical therapists probably know you for the best test. How did that come about? <laughs> so the this balance evaluation systems test, the best test, um, really came about in two ways. Um, one is Anne Shelby Cook and I were um, teaching weekend workshops on how to evaluate balance problems in neurologic patients for about 20 years. And we had developed, based on research, um, what uh, ways a therapist could evaluate different aspects of balance control. And I thought that was uh, useful because it, it got away from this reflex way of thinking about balance control and allowed people to look at these systems that are underlying balance that um, would include things like how you use your senses for balance control and how you respond to perturbations and how you anticipate your movements. Um, but um, as time went on, I, and I saw standardized tests becoming more useful in physical therapy, like the Berg Balance Scale, for instance, I realized we really needed to translate um, our framework into something that would be very practical for physical therapists. And so, so at that time, uh, Dr. Jim Frank, who is a kinesiologist um, from Waterloo, Canada, was in my lab doing a sabbatical. And I said, why don't, why don't we do that? Why don't we try to translate this framework for thinking about balance control into um, a balance, balance scale that could be used by a physical therapist? And so um, we did that. And then um, in order to find out if, uh, how useful that kind of, and to refine the test, um, Diane Risley came to my lab as a postdoctoral fellow and we did the test. So it, it, allowed, it, it just allowed me to um, make systematic the, the, the thing that had developed in my mind over time. You know, being a physical therapist doing this research, you, uh, I'm always trying to think, how do I translate what I just learned in this experiment to something I would do different with a patient? And um, I think it just allowed us to, to make it... Uh, uh, allow for a systematic assessment of the patient's problems, and now by assigning numbers to them, 
you know, it, it made it practical for clinical use. Although I must say a little long. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we decided to develop the mini-best test. Because I realized, even as we were doing it, that I know we needed all six components, and I didn't want to let any of them away. But I knew it was long as practice got uh, busier and busier, and, and therapists had to see more and more patients. And shorter and shorter times. Which is why we had to develop even a shorter test. Mm -hmm. Much of your uh, work was, is in the area of Parkinson's disease. And a lot has, has changed in treatment of Parkinson's over the past 20 years. What would you say is uh, one of your contributions to that change? Right, right now I'm actually in a Parkinson's disease center, the Parkinson's Center of Oregon. And the very first day I walked into Lou Nashner's lab, Lou Nashner was not there, he was gone on sabbatical. but. Um, Dr. Jay Nutt was there, and he's a Parkinson specialist, a neurologist, and we've been working together ever since. And uh, at that time, in um, 82, people didn't really look at balance problems in Park people with Parkinson's disease. And since I had done my research on basal ganglia, I thought, well, here's quite an opportunity to try to translate what I learned in monkeys to people with basal ganglia problems. And so I think um, we're writing a review right now on this for the Journal Movement Disorders. I think we've changed the way neurologists look at balance in, in Parkinson's patients. They, they would assume, for some people would assume they had vestibular problems, for instance, you know, because they had a balance problem, going back to the old way of thinking. Um, and a lot of them thought, since these are reflexes and they're abnormal, they're, they can't be changed because they didn't see big changes with lipidopa, and so they didn't, and people still fell after you gave them medication, you know. So um, they thought they were, you know, unchangeable. So I think the biggest thing is now that they recognize that the balance problem with people with Parkinson's are complicated, that not every person with Parkinson's has is a somewhat different combination of problems, and that these are, um, problems that can be helped with physical therapy, that their balance problems um, can be uh, remediated or improved with therapy. And so many more Parkinson patients are seeing therapists and earlier earlier in the disease um, with the hope that keeping them active uh, can really slow down the disease progression and maybe be neuroprotective. So I think that's probably the biggest impact is is to see that they have a problem that exercise is actually more effective than any other approach, including the new approach of deep brain stimulation. That we've done studies showing that deep brain stimulation actually worsens balance control, and levodopa doesn't help it, and therefore, but exercise, uh, many studies have shown, can, can make a difference. So I, I think that most good neurologists who specialize in Parkinson's disease would agree that exercise and seeing a physical therapist is like part of the normal care for people with Parkinson's disease. From your mind and your mouth, why is exercise better than some medical treatments? <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, exercise is good for everybody. <laughs> um, and um, for instance, they know that it changes the brain, not just behavior. So there's nerve growth factors like BDNF that they know is particularly uh, low in people with Parkinson's disease. So 
and that gets increased, this nerve growth factor, with exercise. Um, I, th I think it's, um, it's multifactorial that there's many reasons changing the brain in people with Parkinson's can, can be helpful. That you're, you're not only teaching them how to do tasks and helping them compensate with other parts of their brain, um, and you're not only preventing problems like back pain and, and uh, musculoskeletal problems, um, I think that the, probably the most important thing the right kind of exercise can do is, is neuroplasticity, is that improving the neuroplasticity, because I think what Parkinson's disease is, is a loss of that neuroplasticity. And so I think exercises that are mentally challenging as well as physically challenging that are, um, help them with the cognitive problems they have as well as the motor problems, I think it actually can um, kind of reverse the almost they almost have accelerated aging and we're trying to help reverse or slow that down to help them um, have more plasticity that is more synapses more connections in their brain more uh, less stereotype movement and more flexibility of behaviors so I think um, I think it's actually you know changing the brain for the better and I, I predict that we will be able to show eventually that the right kind of exercise and the right dose is going to be neuroprotective and slow down progression of the disease. As well as perhaps help us to age better. Yeah, all of us you've need done, exercise. You've done work <laughs> looking at changes in aging mm -hmm. uh, to the postural control systems. and mm -hmm. So where do you see that work translating into mm -hmm. our practice? Mm -hmm. with Aging without, the, without disease. Mm -hmm. That's true. I think um, well, most people would agree that aerobic exercise is important for, for everybody. And as we age, it becomes more and more important. But I would say that what our work shows that we should also be pra practicing tasks that require balance control. So that if you're only doing tasks like, uh, say, sitting on a recumbent bike and moving your legs on it with resistance, you're improving strength and you're improving aerobic capacity, which could help your balance, but you're not training your balance control system. You're not looking at the neuroplasticity of the parts of the brain involved in integrating senses to control your equilibrium. So if you, but on the other hand, if you're on a treadmill and you're dual tasking by watching the news or reading, reading the closed captions, then, um, and you're not holding on, <laughs> then maybe that same exercise is, you're adding a balance training to that exercise program. So I guess that's what I would encourage older people to do is to go out and walk and go on hikes on, on alternate terrains while they're walking to talking to a partner and carrying things and looking at a lot of variety of challenging conditions that uh, that helps them practice their their balance control so not just aerobic exercise or strength and exercise but to add a balance component to their exercise program or maybe do a sport you know like tennis or or uh, tai chi or something I think some of us that have been practicing for a while are a little bit more comfortable challenging either the people that we're working with with disease or even older individuals who per perhaps have been sent to us because they're risk for falls. However, I hear countless times from people that come to see me, they've, they've gone to a younger physical therapist and they've asked a question like, I want to go out and walk my dog. And the PT that they're seeing is saying, absolutely not. 
you can't walk your dog and walk at the same time. <laughs> and they ask me the same question, and I approach it differently. How are we going to help the new professionals, the young professionals, understand the, the frequency, intensity, and dose that we as PTs must apply now to make those neuroplastic changes? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's um, difficult. Physical therapists are in a difficult situation because they want to help people avoid falling, and yet they need to challenge their balance control system. And so, um, and we know if people have poor balance control and they become very active, they're going to fall more. However, if they become immobile, they're also going to fall more. So you have to find that delicate in between. And you, you have to help your patient um, find activities that challenge them um, as much as possible and not just help them compensate by not moving. <laughs> or by using um, assisted devices, but also to help them uh, find ways to keep them active. Um, I agree that I think um, we always underestimate how much training is required to learn a motor skill. And if balance is a motor skill, like learning to play tennis, or um, then you could see the, you know, the hundreds of hours or the many, many hours that are needed to develop that skill. And so the therapist shouldn't be thinking about developing the skill with the patient when they're seeing them. I mean, that's, there's never enough time for that. The, the best they can do is help the patient find things that they can do, like walking the dog, which would produce occasional perturbations if the dog sees a squirrel or something, and to help them prepare for those perturbations and to anticipate the, the kind of balance challenges that go on with things like, like um, walking around. Uh, they're black with uneven surfaces, with moving visual surrounds, and with a dog that could be pulling you any moment. So I think um, it's it's to if if all we want to do is keep them safe, we would just tie them down to bed. <laughs> That's just like the opposite of what we should be doing in physical therapy. We should be challenging them and showing them how to challenge their balance and control system safely in all kinds of environments. One of the things I noted is that you are a consultant for the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which is a Parkinson's disease foundation. Have you met Michael J. Fox? <laughs> I've met a lot of people with Parkinson's disease that are well-known, but not Michael J. Fox. <laughs> oh, dang, I thought you were going to have a four, bad, huh? four degrees from Kevin Bacon number. <laughs> really? Well, I have met Brian Grant, who um, was a big blazer, if anybody's a sports fan. He was a basketball player in Portland. He got early onset Parkinson's disease, and he started his own Brian Grant Foundation. And um, so we see him quite often. And he decided to have his foundation actually focus on exercise for people with early onset, mild Parkinson's disease. So very uh, agility training for very mild people with Parkinson's. So many people have Parkinson's disease now that are famous. And that can actually raise the awareness of the public to how common this disease is. Absolutely. You have many international collaborations. I saw Singapore, Italy, Slovakia, Thailand, and that's probably just a few. Tell us about one of your alliances and how it was established and what your role is with them. That's difficult because there's so many. Uh -huh. <laughs> Where do I begin, right? Well, pick one. I'll pick one. Um, I've been collaborating with Margaret Mack, who's a physical therapist PhD in Hong Kong. 
she um, has invited me over there, and I've, I've done course courses there on balance control. And at the time I first went there many years ago, none of the faculty had PhDs. And then Dr. Christina Chen was the head of the program there. She was from Canada, went there. And um, I went there to help encourage the faculty on um, projects that they were thinking about for their PhD program, for instance. And Margaret Mack is interested in people with Parkinson's disease. So now that she has her PhD, she's looking at um, the mini best tests in people with Parkinson's disease and whether it predicts falls. And so I Skype with her every month and we uh, actually we did the same study in Portland as she did in Hong Kong. And we're comparing uh, our results and finding that people with Parkinson's disease are different in different cultures. That um, the Portland group are more, uh, more affected in terms of the, uh, their motor severity of their Parkinson's disease and yet they're more active. And so they fall more. <laughs> So it's very interesting that the culture influences also their perception. Their perception of their balance control with a with a balance questionnaire is that their balance they think their balance is better people in, in Portland than in people in Hong Kong who perceive their balance to be worse and therefore are less active and therefore don't fall as much, but they don't they're much less mobile. So we're learning things that we didn't anticipate um, by looking at a cross cultural, you know, experiment. But sometimes I, I work with people in places like um, Bologna, Italy, I was just there for two months as a visiting professor, and I've been working with the, one of the heads of engineering department there because he's got all kinds of interesting skills in using body-worn sensors to monitor motion. And so I went there as a physical therapist neuroscientist to, to meet with all of his students who are all in bioengineers interested in using technology to improve rehabilitation and to improve um, assessment of, of mobility and, and movement. So I, um, I have students from his, his um, department that work in my lab and we do projects together. Like one of his students, Marco Doza and I developed an audio biofeedback system to improve balance control. So people could hear their postural sway and use that to improve their stability. So that's something that um, they couldn't do without me, and I couldn't do without them. It really required different skills and coming together for a common goal. Right. So what's the craziest idea you've ever brainstormed? <laughs> Whether it's come to fruition or not. <laughs> well, my brainstorming lately is that we can have virtual therapists in the home with wireless sensors that are born on the body, that, sh that a therapist... Um, could monitor how a patient is doing their exercises when they're back in their clinic just by looking on their computer screen and seeing their, how they're moving on their computer. I think that that will allow therapists to um, see hundreds of people at a time and allow patients to exercise every day for an hour, much more than they could with a physical therapist, and that they could do it right. So they'd have a virtual physical therapist in their home giving mm -hmm. them feedback that's progressive as they get better and that and then hopefully with uh, tele-rehabilitation so that the physical therapist can actually uh, determine not only are they complying with the exercises, but are they tilting their pelvis just the right way to avoid that back pain? Or are they really you know, doing the exercise correctly? I, I think it's, this goal is reachable. Um, it sounds like it. But it's, um, it's not there yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think it's the direction that physical therapy is going to be moving and using more technology to make 
let us reach people, uh, more people with, with less cost. It's a little bit of a paradigm shift, though, taking yeah. us from a hands-on profession yeah. to a technologically-based profession. The younger generation, I think, will buy it quickly. It's those of us who have been in practice for a while who might say, oh, we need the human touch. So how, how might you explain, how might you get us to buy mm. in to that concept? Mm. Well, I don't think that a computer could ever replace a physical therapist. <laughs> I think that, but the therapist um, should be the one with the brain to evaluate the patient and develop the appropriate exercises and develop the challenges and then um, keep in touch with the patient um, periodically to make sure that what they're seeing on the computer it really matches with what you know what, what is actually happening and I do think that the power of human touches is still really important and um, the caring that the physical therapists do with their patients didn't you do some research on haptic touch <laughs> yes we did <laughs> we did we did we did show that um, just the touch of one little finger on a on a Stable surface was more effective even than vision in improving your balance control. Oh, that's right. It was a, I forgot that was that. <laughs> it was about one, yeah. balance. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. about the emotional side yeah, of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I think it has to be a, probably a combination of the one-on-one um, -on -one, uh, physical therapy with the touch and the observation of the whole movement. Be because no matter how many sensors you put on the body, your stool doesn't explain everything about what a therapist is using to evaluate that patient's mm -hmm. behavior. There's so many more things about facial expression and so many things that, you know, just a wearable sensors can't, can't measure. But I do think um, if it can give you more information, objective information, more sensitive information, and the patient can practice more often, then and um, you as a therapist can prescribe the level of challenge so it's customized for each person, and you get to customize it using the technology, then I think it's the best of both worlds. You know, it's, it's both the brain of the therapist as well as the computer that that's, can be helping the patient. Well, you're awfully busy, but what do you do for fun? <laughs> I probably travel for fun. <laughs> and I make collaborations <laughs> all around the world for fun. So most of my uh, fun is exploring different cultures. I really do enjoy... Um, traveling in exotic cultures and learning and meeting people and trying to understand what their world's like and how they see these things. I love um, going to the museums, uh, the cultural museums especially. So I probably would be an anthropologist or something if I wasn't a physical therapist. <laughs> now you've been a member of the APTA and neurology section really since you graduated from from PT school, mm -hmm. um, what does being a member of those of those uh, organizations mean to you? Well, I, I uh, it's always been important to be a member of the neurology section um, of the and of the American Physical Therapy Association because it, it gives me a grounding in something real, so that the neuroscience can translate to something that can help people today, and also to um, to meet other people with similar interests. Sometimes you come to a meeting like this and you find out that there's someone else who's asking the same kinds of questions or that has an answer to something that you've been troubled by. or um, So that it helps you feel like it's really a small world when it comes to people who are really interested in, 
in some of the questions that we're interested in. And you can find them at, at meetings like this. And also you could learn from other people you know, on, on, on how they're looking at some of the same problems. So it's, it's, it allows the translation of the science, but also allows a, a friendship, friendships and uh, collaborations to occur. Like one of the things I did is started a, a, a rehabilitation social at the Society for Neuroscience um, over 20 years ago with some other physical therapists who were doing research. And at the time, there was five of us, including Becky Craig and Stephen Wolf, and and there's like five, neuroscience, and we felt like we were the only physical therapists in neuroscience, and so we decided to have a party, <laughs> and then we decided we started to formalize it, and we had party grew from five people to fifty people, and now hundreds of people come every year, because more and more physical therapists are, are neuroscientists too. So that's been very. Uh, rewarding because you feel like like you're not alone in trying to bridge that gap between neuroscience and rehabilitation. You can be encouraged by other people who are doing the same thing. 20 years from now, what do you think the physical therapists then are going to remember you by? <laughs> or maybe what do you want to be remembered <laughs> in the future? I, I think I'm most... Uh, would like to most be remembered for the translation of the most current motor control neurophysiology into improving rehabilitation for neurological patients. Uh, and particularly trying to understand how the brain controls balance and how that might change the way a physical therapist would treat balance problems. So, um, there's a, I, I always thought that after working in a field for many years that you kind of have more answers than questions, but actually there's more questions than answers. But I have seen uh, physical therapy change um, over time, and therapists are becoming much more professionals in being able to diagnose what kind of a motor control problem a patient has, and therefore customizing the, the treatment based on that. So I guess that's where where I like to be in the middle between science and practice in the translational part. I like that. More questions than answers. <laughs> Did you have any other questions, Linda? What is your biggest passion today? Hmm. Today, I guess my biggest passion is to try to understand how the new body-worn sensor technologies that become available can best help physical therapists. I really want to understand that and help them get there. I don't want physical therapy to get left behind the technology revolution. I would like the best brains in, in neuroengineering to apply it to rehabilitation and to help those engineers to do it right for physical therapists. So I think that's what I'm most excited about right now because I see that um, the technology is getting there and the interest of bioengineers getting there and, and that if we're, um, we realize now uh, more what needs to be done to help uh, patients learn to move better and I think technology could be helpful for that. So I guess I'd like to facilitate that and I'm most excited about that right now, especially for neurological problems. Is this the mobility lab? Yeah, that's what we call it. Although we want to change that in the future to a mobility clinic. 
Right now, it's been designed as a laboratory for clinical research. So it's, re it's really been f focused on trying to get my lab out to the rest of the scientific community who wants to do research on balance and walking clinical research. And I think it's really good for that, for clinical trials or for seeing if your exercise makes a difference. Um, but to make it really useful in the clinic, you get not only FDA approval, but we want to make it simpler, faster, more relevant for training, and including more training modules, you know, adaptive training, training in the home. So that's where I'd like to focus my energy in the rest of my career, is trying to get from clinical research to clinical practice in, in this area now, in, in technology. And I, I see a, a big future in that for physical therapy. And still many years of work, I think. Many years of work yet. But, you know, I said that before, and, and things I've seen how much things can change. And to me, it seems like a blink of an eye. So it seems like many years, but, you know, 20 years, and things change pretty dramatically in 20 years. So I, I think it's going to happen. I hope I'm still alive to see it. <laughs> sure you will. Well, I really appreciate you coming and talking to us okay. and allowing us to share your story with uh, the neurology section. So again, thank you very, thank you. very much. Thank you. It was thank nice you. meeting you. Thank you.